Luke chapter 2, verses 13 to 14. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a joy to begin this day confronted with the full bore wonder and consummate riches of the gospel. I must take a marination moment. Peace to men upon whom his favor rests. God's favor, welcome, delight, acceptance, smile, affection, resting on rebellious, self-absorbed, idolatrous men. It's all right there in this one doxological declaration, this sudden angelic proclamation, this gospel-infused affirmation. Everything my heart longs for and more than I could have ever hoped for or imagined. Oh, the joy, Father, of knowing that you are at peace with me and that I have your favor permanently resting upon me. All because of what you've done for us in Jesus. Father, if unredeemed angels were in awe of such good news, how much more should we be staggered and astonished, humbled and grateful, liberated and transformed? We invest so much of our lives looking for favor, wanting to be wanted, longing to be celebrated, seeking to be acceptable, Personally, I've looked to so many things to give me what you alone give us freely and fully in the gospel. What a freeing paradox, Father. The more we come alive to the riches of the gospel, the less we obsess about our own lives, our past and our future, our brokenness, needs, and plans. Your grace doesn't lead us to think either more of ourselves or less of ourselves. We just end up thinking about ourselves less often. How liberating. Lord Jesus, as we listen again to this old host of angels declaring your glory and your grace, may it drive us into a fresh worship of you this very day. It's only because you submitted to the fullness of God's disfavor for us that we can even imagine, much less boast of having the fullness of God's favor resting on us. We praise, honor, and adore you. We will not look at your cradle without gazing at your cross. So very amen we pray in your holy and loving name. Isn't that great news? When the angels announced the birth of Jesus It wasn't lightning bolts coming down. It wasn't God twisting your arm behind your back and making you cry uncle. It was peace to those on whom his grace, his favor rests. I love that. That's good news. Because if you're like me, 
you fail more than you want. And if you're like me, you sin more than you wish. And if you're like me, you sometimes keep sinning that same old sin that you swore off years ago. So what do you do when that's your life? Where do you get hope? Where do you get peace? How do you keep from going crazy? Because if you're like me, when you fail more than you want and you sin more than you wish and you keep sinning that same old sin that you swore off years ago, if you're like me, then your sins usher in a myriad of condemning voices in your heart. A myriad of condemning voices like those, those angels singing at the birth of Jesus. A myriad of condemning voices singing in unison, in harmony, and telling you everything that you've done wrong. And these condemning voices will try to convince you and me that God's sick of you and that he can't stand you and that he's tired of you not keeping your promises and that he's frustrated with you and maybe even mad at you. So how do you quiet those clamoring, condemning voices that are just always telling you how much you have failed, telling you how much you have sinned? Where do you get peace How do you get to a place where you have peace like a river that attendeth your way? Answer, you have to look outside of yourself to Jesus. You cannot look inward for peace. You can't stare in the mirror and find peace. You can't look to your own progress and sanctification to get peace. Let me say that again. You cannot look to your own progress in sanctification in order to find peace. Because if you do, if you try to look at your own progress in sanctification in order to get peace, you'll either be one, prideful about your progress, or two, you'll despair over the lack of it. You get peace in your heart. You feel peace in your heart. And you thus begin to enjoy God when you remember and rehearse the gospel. And so our big idea today is really what Paul is telling the Corinthians at the beginning of this letter. He's simply telling them this. God's favor, welcome Delight, acceptance, smile, and affection rest on you. Enjoy it, y'all. That's what Paul's saying. It's how he begins his letter. He wants them to know, listen, God's favor and his welcome and his delight and his acceptance of you and his smile and his affection, it rests on you. It is settled on you. So just enjoy it. Just soak it up. This is discipleship 101. Every single day you have to renew your feeling of and your belief in God's favor. You have to renew your feeling of his acceptance of you. Not that we live by feelings because we don't live by feelings. We live by faith. 
But I'm talking about getting to a point in your heart where you really feel it and you believe it. His mercies are new every morning and we have to renew them in our hearts every morning. We have to renew the new mercies. And that's what Paul is doing here in the opening of his letter to the Corinthians. He's saying, hey y'all, let's relax and just enjoy God's favor. He's reminding them about grace. They don't deserve it, but they need it really bad. And God is happy and thrilled to give it. But why do we need to renew God's favor every day? Why do we need to do this even if we've been a Christian for many years? Listen, I've been a Christian for 44 years. And I still have trouble believing that God is as good as he says he is in his word. Not because there's any problem with God. There's not. The problem is with me. I still have this low-grade feeling that maybe one day he'll reach a point where he just gets sick of me. Where he will finally kick me out. And don't we all have this feeling deep down inside? We all have days where we struggle to believe that we really are forgiven. Now, we're going to talk about it today, but we'll talk about it more next week, and I'll give you a new resource to help uh, in this. I'm starting to, after 44 years of being a Christian, I'm starting to believe it a little more. Finally, starting to really believe that it's true. It's taken me a long time. And that's why we need this reminder. We have to renew and remember that in the gospel, God's favor, his acceptance of us is settled on us and it never runs out and it never reaches the end. Contrary to what those condemning voices tell us, just going in our hearts and minds all the time, contrary to what those voices tell us, God is not fickle. God's favor, his welcome, his delight, his acceptance, his smile, his affection, his tender care rests and is settled on rebellious, self-absorbed, idolatrous people like us. What we need to do is marinate in this truth daily. God wants us to soak in and marinate in this truth and begin to feel his pleasure and feel his favor resting on us. And then we'll have peace. And then we'll actually begin to enjoy God. I mean, imagine that. Imagine enjoying God. That's discipleship 101. But that's not how many Christians view discipleship. For many, discipleship is just one big attempt to be better. One big attempt to do more and to try harder. Listen, if we narrow Christianity down to just getting better, then that's where we will end up. Either full of pride over our progress or in despair over our lack of progress. Listen, if Christianity is merely about getting better, let me ask you, how's that working out for you? Ask your family members. 
How's that working out for you? The freeing truth about Christianity is that we are made right with God, not once we finally get our act together, but when we come to grips with the fact that we never will. That's the starting point of Christianity, when I can honestly say that I will never get my act together. And so Paul is writing to tell a church that can't get its act together that Jesus still loves them. And Paul wants them to get to the end of his letter and feel so loved by God that they're willing to follow Jesus. He wants them to get to verse 14 of chapter 13 and feel so loved by God that they are willing to part ways with these super apostles who have invaded the church and are pulling them away from pure devotion to Jesus. He wants them to feel so loved by God that they want to follow and obey him. And that's what I want for all of us with this sermon. To get to the end of this sermon and to be able to say, I feel so loved by Jesus that I want to follow him and want to enjoy him more. And we can do that, right? Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord whose favor is settled on you, Christian. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how God-centered Paul is from the get-go. He begins by highlighting what God is doing and has done. So notice those words there, of Christ Jesus, of God, of God, from God. If you're a person who likes to underline or highlight in your Bible or circle words, this is one of those spots. Underline and circle and highlight those words, of Christ Jesus, of God, of God, from God. Paul is recalibrating this messy church right at the very beginning. He's rehearsing the gospel with them. He's recentering their lives and their thoughts around God in contrast to what the super apostles were doing because the super apostles, all they wanted to do was make ministry about them. They wanted to be in the limelight instead of Jesus. And we see Paul defending himself against these narcissistic super apostles right out of the gate in verse 1. Paul says that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. In other words, this was God's plan for Paul's life, not his. It was God who called Paul to be an apostle. He wasn't seeking it out. He didn't answer an ad in the paper. God called him. Now, recall from the book of Acts that Paul was just minding his own business, persecuting the church when Jesus saved him. Paul didn't wake up one day and just decide to become an apostle. In grace, Jesus arrested him. Jesus stopped him dead in his tracks on the road to Damascus, and the Holy Spirit regenerated him right then and there. And up to this point in his life, Paul had everything going for him. 
He was an up-and-coming rabbi. He was the next big thing, the next celebrity rabbi, the next super rabbi. He was on the fast track to ministry success in the Jewish world as a Pharisee. As he says in Philippians 3, he tells the Philippians, his resume had it all. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And then he lost it all on the Damascus road. He lost his heritage. He lost his ethnic superiority. He lost his image. He lost his identity. He lost his perfect designer life. But he gained Jesus. And when you come to Jesus, you can say what Paul says after he flashed his resume to the Philippian church. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish or dung in order that I might gain Christ. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for me, and it's what I want for this church, and it's what I'm praying for, that we find our greatest success in losing it all, that we find our greatest joy in losing the perfect little fantasy worlds that we dream about or that we have already created for ourselves, and we find true peace and joy in Christ. That's our part in all of this. To lose it all and to find everlasting joy in Jesus. Giving up our fantasy designer lives and finding real life and finally enjoying God. Imagine that. Enjoying God. So the question before us today is this. Are we willing to trust Jesus enough that we're okay with him letting us suffer the loss of all things like Paul so that we gain him? Are we willing to trust Jesus enough that we can lose our reputations and lose our beloved dreams, lose our fantasies, lose our pet idols, lose our darling sins, and lose the self-centered kingdom that we have built up so that we really experience life? Let's pray that we would be a church that would be willing to lose everything in order to gain Christ. Let's pray that we would be willing to lose it all if it means we get more of Jesus and we begin to enjoy him. Listen, we see it here with Paul right at the outset of his letter. The super apostles were saying that a true apostle would not live a life of suffering and loss. They were triumphalistic in their understanding of Christianity. So they don't have a category for an apostle who suffers. It was all triumphalistic. It was always positive. Everything's always good. A true apostle called by the will of God, they said, would not be suffering hardship after hardship like Paul. 
But Paul is writing to let the Corinthian church know that he is, in fact, an apostle by the will of God because apostles, like all disciples, suffer loss. Paul's beginning to lay the theological groundwork that God, in fact, and we'll see this repeatedly throughout 2 Corinthians, that God, in fact, will lead us through suffering. He will lead us through loss. He will lead us through hardships so that we can finally say that we consider all that we lost as dung and as rubbish. And when God leads us through these times of suffering and loss, he does it redemptively. And he does it in such a profound way that we can emerge from this loss, from these trials, from these hardships, from this suffering. We can emerge from those things and we no longer obsess over all the things that we lost. We no longer obsess over how difficult it was and we start rejoicing that we have actually gained much more of Jesus and now we enjoy him more because we have gone through that suffering. And so that's just Philippians 3 Apostle Paul stuff there. We can actually get to a place where after we have suffered the loss of it all, we can actually be so happy in Jesus that we don't care anymore because we are now so enthralled with Jesus. You see, true peace is found when, number one, we lose everything, and number two, we find our identity in Christ. When we lose our perfect ideas of what our perfect little world should be like, and we found ourselves caught up in God's family and caught up in God's story. And we see that here when Paul mentions who is with him in verse one. He says, Timothy, our brother. Paul's identity is no longer wrapped up in what he was in his Jewish upbringing or the fancy career he had as a Pharisee that he had carved out for himself. Now it is wrapped up with God's family. And we see it also with whom he addresses his letter to, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Paul's ministry is no longer about him and his career arc. It's no longer about becoming the next big super rabbi. Now his identity is wrapped up in God's family, wrapped up in God's people, the church. But who is Paul writing this letter to? What is this church family like? Answer, they come from Corinth. That could be the title to a cheesy 1960s horror movie. They come from Corinth. If you don't know, Corinth was a wicked city. The port city of Corinth would make Mardi Gras look like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It was like Moss Eisley in Star Wars. What did Obi-Wan Kenobi say to Luke Skywalker as they were preparing to head there? He said this, Moss Eisley Spaceport. You will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. That's what the city of Corinth was like. You would never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. Its chief shrine was the temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. That temple had over 1,000 prostitutes that were available so that you could go 
worship. Every form of perversion and immorality you could find in Corinth. It's kind of like being able to order a pizza at 2 a.m. in the morning in New York City. You could find anything you wanted, anything your heart craved, anytime in the city of Corinth. And it was in this city that Paul planted this church. What grace. Here in this wicked city, God began effectually calling his people home. And that should not surprise us, right? As Ralph Davis said, where will Jesus get his servants if he doesn't go to the landfill and rescue them? That's good news for us. What hope that gives us. And so, yeah, we may live in one of the hardest places in America here on the central coast. One of the most uh, post-Christian places. One of the hardest places for the gospel to get traction is right here on the central coast where we live. But we need not despair because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. As Puritan Richard Sibbs said, Let no people despair, nor no person, for God hath his church in Corinth. And so what does Jesus do when he decides to plant a church? He looks for the most perverse city this side of the Mississippi. He says, I'm looking for a city where I could not find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. I'm looking to pluck a few of my elect people out of the landfills. Hmm, let's look on the map. Corinth, that's the place. It's perfect. Now, why does Jesus do this? Why does he start churches with the most wretched hive of scum and villainy? Who does that? Who plants a church with the most wretched hive of scum and villainy? Jesus does. And why does he do it? Because then he gets the glory, not us. When the church at Corinth thrived, they could not take any credit for it. They were a mess. They would get drunk. There were people in the church getting drunk when they celebrated communion, when they celebrated the Lord's Supper. And there was this foul, immoral relationship that Paul says, the world doesn't even do this stuff, and you guys are doing it and allowing it. And then there were all these little cliques in the church. Who gets the glory when that church is planted and then succeeds? Not them. All the glory goes to Jesus. Resident, plant the church with the wretched hive of scum and villainy people, church planter. In spite of all that's plagued them, believe it or not, Paul has high expectations for Corinth. He's not giving up on them. They are seriously messed up, but Paul is full of hope. Why? Because this is the church of God. Because they belong to God. They belong to Jesus because they are saints, as he says in verse 1. Because they are in Christ. The church at Corinth and all the saints scattered throughout all of Achaia are in Christ. Therefore, Paul is full of hope for them. And there's hope for us too. We belong to God. This church belongs to God. It doesn't belong to us. We belong to God. We are in him. Listen, Christian, you're not in the lost and found, Ben. 
You may feel like it, but you're not. Now you were, you were lost in Adam and Jesus found you and claimed you as his own, just like he did with the apostle Paul. You belong to him now. You may feel like you're in the lost and found bin, but you're not. You're in Christ. Christian, you're in his church. You belong now to the people of God. And there's no better place to be. And that truth should give you hope. Tell me, do you have hope for this church? You should. This church belongs to God. And therefore, you should be full of hope for Grace Baptist Church of Santa Maria. I am. I'm full of hope. Why? Because Jesus is involved. And when Jesus is involved, you know you're in good hands, right? Why be full of hope for this church, for grace? Because this church belongs to Jesus, not to us. He's going to take care of us. The giving has been generous during a pandemic. You know why? Because of Jesus, because this church belongs to him and he's working in your heart to give and support this ministry because it belongs to him. And we see that it's right to have this kind of hope because of those four words in verse one, the church of God. Those four words that you, you and I probably just read past and don't even think about, those four words are just oozing with hope. You just kind of keep wiping hope away from those four words and it just keeps oozing out again. You try to wipe it away and those four words are just oozing with hope. Those four words actually help me relax. Those four words help me to exhale and not be inhaling all the time. <laughs> What's going to happen to grace? <laughs> no, those four words make me go, Jesus has got it all taken care of. I don't have to worry about a thing. And I'm an idiot. <laughs> and I should be concerned. Because I'm the pastor. And I'm not. Because Jesus is in control. Those four words help me exhale. Those four words are like an hour long massage. They simply help you relax and you actually begin to enjoy God. I mean, imagine that, enjoying God. Listen, we're going to be okay, Grace, no matter what happens in this world because of those four words, the church of God. So there's no need to ever panic about anything, ever. There's no need to ever stress about anything, ever. There's just pure hope because this church belongs to God and it's all due to his grace. We didn't earn it and we can't earn it. All we can do is say, thank you, Jesus, and then just shut our mouths. And so all that Paul is doing in the formal introduction of this letter is reinforcing this hope by by reminding the Corinthian church God's favor, God's welcome, God's delight, God's acceptance, God's smile, and God's affection rests on you. So enjoy it, y'all. That's all that Paul is saying here in the first two verses. And that's exactly what we'll see in the next verse, verse two. So look there. Grace to you 
and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't rush past this verse either. This is basic Christianity. This is discipleship 101. This is day-to-day living for a discipleship. It's discipleship in a nutshell. And this is one of the most shocking verses in the Bible. Do you see it? Were you shocked when you read it? Did you scratch your head and say, I can't believe it says that. Hey, read this. Can you believe that? Grace and peace from God to really bad people in a really messed up church like Corinth. It's amazing. Don't ever rush past this opening, which occurs in many of the epistles in the New Testament. Always stop and be overwhelmed by these very familiar words. Grace to you and peace from God. Absolutely mind-blowing. Like the angels in Luke 2 at Jesus' birth, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Peace among those with whom his favor rests. And so people like us who harbor bitterness and get angry in the grocery store and yell at our kids and covet things that don't belong to us, and people like us who would rather have our fancy designer lives than enjoy God, people like us get to be on the receiving end of God's grace and peace, and we have done nothing to deserve it. Wow. I hope verse 2 never bores you. Paul is praying for them to know and feel God's pleasure and favor and thus have peace. He's saying, I want you to feel God's favor, feel his pleasure, his grace resting on you, and I want that to give you peace. And this is why Paul is praying for more grace and peace for Corinth. Because they deserve a slap in the face from God. They deserve a flick of God's knuckle on the top of their head. They don't deserve God's kindness. But in Christ, God doesn't come along slapping their face or flicking them with uh, his knuckle on their head. He actually kisses them with grace and peace. This is why the gospel is not man-made. We wouldn't come up with a God like this. Only God would embrace and kiss those who deserve to have their teeth kicked out and then invite them into his forever family where they can actually enjoy him. So when Paul says grace to you and peace from God, he's actually just echoing the priestly blessing that we saw several weeks ago out of Numbers chapter 6, which says this. This is all Paul is doing. He's echoing that. He's plagiarizing that. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's an Old Testament version of Paul's introduction and greeting here in 2 Corinthians. So Paul is just echoing number six here. He's pointing to God's unmerited favor for people who don't deserve it. 
He's praying that the Corinthians would experience the very heart of God. That they hear about and feel his favor again. And so Paul is just front-loading this number six prayer at the beginning of his letter. And he's also, I believe, echoing Luke chapter 2, verse 14, where the angel said, peace to those on whom God's favor rests, with whom he is well pleased. I think Paul's just copying number six in Luke 2. And think about that, man. When, when the angels come to announce Jesus' birth, they say grace and peace, not lightning bolts, not God's going to zap you, not you better get your act together. Grace and peace. In fact, I was reading at the end of John 13 and John 14 today, Jesus, it's all about grace and peace when he comes again too. Because he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And the disciples say, we want to go be with you. And he said, you can't be with me where I am. You stay here. And he says, and Peter, by the way, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter's like, no, I'm not. And Jesus is like, yes, you are. And then Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go away, I will come again so that you can be where I am. Now, understand, what's the context of Jesus saying, I'm going away to prepare a place. I will come again so that you can be with me and enjoy me forever. What's the context? Peter's failure. Hey, Peter, you're going to deny me three times, but I'm going away to prepare a place. I'm going to come back so you can enjoy me. That's the context of grace and peace in our lives always. It's a context of failure, not measuring up. Sinning that same sin that we promised a thousand times we'd never do again. That is the context in which God's grace and peace comes into our lives. And so Paul is telling the Corinthians here that they, as bad as they are, and they were really bad, they can have peace in their hearts because of God's grace. And that's the pattern. God's favor leads to peace. God's favor, his grace comes to people like us, sinners like us, and then we experience peace that all is well between us and God. And then we begin to relax and we get to simply enjoy him. Man, I want more of that. It's like this, grace comes, then peace, and then we relax and enjoy God. God's grace comes to us, we are at peace with him, And then we relax and we just enjoy God. Now notice that it's not get better and then peace comes and then you can relax and enjoy God. Notice that it's not do more and try harder and then peace comes into your life and then you can relax and enjoy God. You won't ever receive peace by trying hard to be better, by trying hard to do more or by looking to your own sanctification or by looking to your own obedience in order to get peace. Now, that's important. We're being transformed, but we can't go looking for peace there. We can't go looking for peace inside. It has to come from the gospel outside of us. Puritan Richard Sibbs has been very helpful to me in his commentary on 2 Corinthians where he explains how God's grace comes first and then that leads to peace that we experience and enjoy. Here's what he said. Question, what is meant by grace here? Answer, grace in this place is the free favor and love of God from his own bowels, not for any desert or deserving, 
or worth or strength of love of ours. As long as there is a spring of corruption in us, a cursed issue of corruption, so long there will be some actions and speeches and thoughts that will issue that would of themselves break our peace with God or at least hinder the sweet sense of it. Therefore, we have continual occasion to renew our desires of the sense and feeling of the favor of God and to renew our pardon every day to take out a pardon, of course, as we have now the liberty to do so. True peace must be selected from grace, the free favor in Christ. This will quiet and still the clamors of an accusing conscience. God reconciled in Christ will pacify the conscience. Nothing else will do it. For if our chief peace were fetched from sanctification, as many fetch it, thence in error of judgment, alas, the conscience would be dismayed and always doubt whether it had sanctification enough or no. But when our peace is interrupted, when the waters are come into our souls, what must be our course? When we would have peace, go to grace. Go to the free promise of grace in Christ. Grace and peace. So here's what Puritan Richard Sibbs is saying. If we try to get peace from how good we've been, how we are measuring up, like I'm finally measuring up, I got peace. Or how we're getting better. He says if we do that, then we'll never find it. Because true peace does not come from us, from how often we read the Bible, from how much we are praying, from how much we are giving, from how much we are serving. True peace cannot come from these things because we all fail at these things at some point. In fact, we probably fail at them all the time. True peace has to come outside of us in Christ. So we have to constantly renew the sense and feeling of God's favor. We have to renew our forgiveness every day because we fail every day. And then peace will flood our hearts. True peace comes flowing out of the grace of God, the free unmerited favor of God. This alone will quiet the condemning voices in our head that are always like, this alone will quiet those clamoring voices that say things like, I can't believe you did that again. Or, you call yourself a Christian and you did that? Or, I can't believe you were thinking those thoughts. You're a hopeless mess. God must surely be disappointed with you now. He's probably disgusted with you. Do you ever have those thoughts? I do. Do you ever have that voice in your head telling you things like that? I do. How do you get that voice to shut up? It's like that old cartoon where you have the big dog walking down the street and the little dog keeps hopping over and saying, huh, Spike, huh, huh, what are you going to do? Huh, huh, huh. And finally he's like, ah, shut up. How do you get to that point where the clamoring voices in your head and heart are going and you finally say, ah, shut up. You have to take to heart Paul's opening reminder to the Corinthians. God's favor, his welcome, his delight, his acceptance, his smile, his affection rests on you. Enjoy it, y'all. You have to renew your feeling and belief that God's favor does rest on you regardless of how bad you've been. Listen, that's the gospel. It's good news for bad people. Not good news for, eh, okay, 
That's good things happening to bad people. In fact, God has a soft spot in his heart for bad people. A really big soft spot. I mean, imagine that. God has a big soft spot in his heart for really, really bad people like the Corinthians and like us. Wow. And that's why God is having Paul write this love letter to this church to remind them that regardless of what is going on in their lives or in their church, God's favor has settled on them and it will never leave. And that truth is what will then lead to their transformation and then lead to their sanctification. Listen, if the Corinthians were to fetch peace from their sanctification, where would they be? In the pit of despair. They would have been down in the dumps because they have major issues in this church. They can't fetch their peace and fetch their assurance from their obedience or from how well they have been doing with the spiritual disciplines because they have some serious issues and some serious sin that has plagued this church. They have to get their peace, they have to get their assurance from the free favor of God given to them as a gift in Christ. They have to as Richard Sibb says, renew their sense and feeling of favor with God every day. And so do we. We can't fetch our peace from our own sanctification, from how well we're doing. We have to select our peace from God's grace, renew our forgiveness and our pardon daily. That is how the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ. And that's where we find it, in Christ. True peace flows from the free, unmerited favor of Christ, that Jesus lived the life that we could never live, and he died the death that we don't want to deserve. And God raised him from the dead, and he ascended on high, and he's coming again. That alone will quiet and still the clamoring voices of condemnation that accuse all of us daily. When our peace is gone, where do we go? We fly. We hightail it. We don't mosey. We book it to the free, unmerited grace of God. Don't mosey. Don't don't mosey to mercy. Book it and hightail it there. Run to Jesus. When the voices of condemnation begin clamoring in your heart, don't mosey to the cross. Run, run to Jesus and marinate your heart in the love of God until you feel it. And then just enjoy the Lord and tell the devil, shut up, I'm forgiven. I did that this morning taking a shower. I said, you're gonna burn in hell forever. Yeah, I sin, you're gonna burn in hell and I'm gonna enjoy Jesus on the new earth. Take that. Lost my place in the notes. Marinate your heart in the love of God until you feel it and then just enjoy the Lord. It's what you were made for. God's favor, God's welcome, God's delight, God's acceptance, God's smile, God's affection rest on you. Enjoy it, y'all. 
And that could be true for you today if you're not a Christian. Let me call you to repentance, to stop and turn from living for you, to repent of your sin, which has offended God. Repent, turn, and then book it and hightail it to the cross. Hightail it to Jesus, the free mercy of God, and believe. I'm calling you today, if you've not trusted in Jesus before, believe in Jesus. Trust in him now. Call out to him and say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Will you believe today that Jesus died for you in your place for your sin? Will you trust him? Come, and then those words right there can be true for you. Christian, God delights in us so much that it's as if his face just shines and lights up when he sees us. Can you imagine God delighting in you this way? You can because of Jesus, and he does right now. I don't care what kind of week you had. God wants you to feel his pleasure, to feel that his face shines when he looks upon you. He wants you to feel his pleasure today and feel his favor, and I hope you do. So, y'all, let's relax and just enjoy God's favor today, shall we? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are so merciful and gracious and kind to people like us. This is your very heart. Jesus, your heart is not lightning bolts. Your heart is not our arm twisted up behind our back and you're saying, say uncle. Your heart is come unto me. All who labor or heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Thank you that you've opened your heart to us, Jesus. And it's not thunder and lightning and earthquake. It's green pastures and still waters. May we come and enjoy you today for your glory. In your name, amen.